Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective, and our goal is to help us all become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, Rick Warren asks Saddleback Church to start looking for his replacement. Donor-advised funds face new regulations, and the Southern Baptists have some important and difficult issues ahead of them at their upcoming annual convention in Nashville. We'll have a bit of a preview. We begin today with the story of a small Christian college in Pennsylvania that shut down its social work program rather than compromise their Christian beliefs. Yeah, school officials at Cairn University say that the accrediting agency was attempting to impose sexuality and gender values that don't align with the university's Christian mission. They didn't make this decision in a rash manner. It's been in the works for a while. Yeah, it really has. The situation has been under consideration, in fact, for almost a year. Uh, They say the accreditation language was only one factor in that decision, by the way. Karen's mission is to educate students to serve Christ in the church, society, and the world as biblically-minded, well-educated, and professionally competent men and women of character. That comes from their website. The university's in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, which is about 25 miles northeast of Philadelphia and has about 1,500 students. In a statement, the school said, we identify as an evangelical institution, and we have standards of conduct that are based upon our beliefs. That is part of our understanding of our own faith, but also on religious liberty. We don't believe that it's right to be engaged or to be involved in anything that is hateful or hurtful towards the LGBT community or in any way discriminatory, but we are a religious institution. Warren, one of the big stories this week is the news that Rick Warren is moving toward retirement, and he's asked his church to start looking for a replacement. Yeah, Saddleback Church Pastor Rick Warren said on Sunday that uh, the church will begin the official search for a successor, signaling that he is now ready to retire after more than 40 years in that same pulpit. A lot of people probably know Warren because of his book, A Purpose Driven Life, which has sold tens of millions of copies over the years. Yeah, it has. And that book begins with the famous line, it's not about you. And that has been the message that Rick Warren has tried to communicate for the past few years, that Saddleback is not about him, uh, but he also said that he wanted an orderly transition. Saddleback Community Church started in 1980, and it is the second largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention and one of the largest churches in the country. Yeah, it is. A lot of people probably don't know that Saddleback is, in fact, a Southern Baptist church, but it is. And of course, the SBC has had its share of controversy in the past few years. Saddleback has always been a bit of a rebel as in regards its relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention, and it cemented its rebellion recently, in fact, when it ordained women as pastors, a move that goes directly against the policies of the Southern Baptist Convention's 
Baptist faith and message document. That said, uh, I've heard nothing about Saddleback leaving the SBC, though the timing of the ordinations of Rick Warren's announcement and all the troubles within the SBC uh, probably are not coincidental. Warren, let's look at one more story before our first break, and that story involves Hobby Lobby and the Green family. Yeah, Hobby Lobby uh, has filed a lawsuit demanding the return of more than $7 million that it paid an Egyptian professor to purchase ancient papyri fragments that it says were stolen. The suit was filed in the U.S. District Court of Eastern New York earlier this month, and it accuses Dick Obik, who was a lecturer at Oxford University until February, a fraud and breach of contract in connection with seven sales agreements executed between February of 2010 and February of 2013. It states that some of the fragments were stolen by Obik from the Egyptian Exploration Society, the custodian of the largest collection of ancient papyri in the world, including those from the Grinfell and Hunt excavations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries at a site in Egypt, which uh, has become world famous. It's housed at the University of Oxford in England. A lot of those artifacts ended up in the Museum of the Bible, and that caused a lot of embarrassment for the museum and for the Greens. Yeah, it did. Um, but as our reporting in the past on this subject has made, I think, pretty clear, it doesn't appear that either the Greens or the museum were trying to deceive the public. It seems rather that they were deceived themselves. And now this lawsuit is attempting to prove that and recover some of those funds. So what's going to happen next? Well, interestingly, Obik admitted in 2017 that he had what he called mistakenly sold some gospel fragments that were not authentic. But it's also not clear that Obik has the funds to repay Hobby Lobby. Warren, we need to take a break here. When we return, COVID and churches remain in the news. We'll have updates from two cases we've covered previously. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Let's continue with two stories related to churches and COVID. Warren, first is an update on the Louisiana story. Yeah, lawyers for Louisiana Pastor Tony Spell has asked a federal appeals court this week to resurrect a suit that he filed last summer 
uh, that were opposing restrictions on worship during the pandemic, even though the state's rules have since been eased significantly. About 1,000 of Spell's supporters protested outside the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals as the leader of Life Tabernacle Church, that's a church in Baton Rouge, uh, appeared with his lawyers to ask that the case be reheard. Now, as Ministry Watch reported last year, the church continued to hold large in-person services throughout the pandemic, despite stay-at-home orders that were issued by Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards. And the other story involves a case in California. Yeah, this case um, is a, a case of really two cases combined. A Chula Vista, California church and a Bakersfield priest were both represented by the uh, Thomas More Society. State of California has agreed to pay a total of $2.1 million in legal fees to settle those lawsuits. The Thomas More Society will receive $1.6 million for its representation of uh, South Bay United Pentecostal Church and about $550,000 for defending Father Trevor Burfitt. Now, both parties had sued the state after California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, had placed limitations on indoor worship and singing at churches in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID. The key argument in these cases was that the churches were unfairly targeted, noting that while some retailers were allowed to operate at 50% capacity, houses of worship were allowed only to fill up to 25% of capacity. So this was a pretty clear case of churches being treated differently from other kinds of organizations. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention is having its big annual meeting next week in Nashville, and one of the key issues on the agenda is how the church is handling sexual abuse. What's the latest on that story? Well, two Southern Baptist pastors will seek an investigation into allegations that the highest echelons of the Southern Baptist Convention mishandled several sex abuse claims and bullied sex abuse victims. Now, these pastors are Ronnie Parrott of Christ Community Church in Huntersville, North Carolina. By the way, Huntersville is very near where I live here in the northern Charlotte suburb. And Grant Gaines, pastor of Bel Air Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. They have said that they will make a motion at the upcoming meeting of the SBC asking the denomination's newly elected president to hire an outside firm to investigate. The Southern Baptists, as you mentioned, Natasha, will be meeting uh, this week or next week, depending upon when you're listening to this, June 15th and 16th in Nashville uh, for their annual convention. And the ongoing scandal of sexual abuse in churches is going to be high on the agenda for the entire meeting. And the ghost of Russell Moore will hang over the proceedings, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Russell Moore resigned his position as the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC, but he's wrote two scathing letters that detailed the inner workings of the SBC's executive committee, the group that is actually runs the business of the denomination. Uh, Moore's first letter addressed the ERC executive committee and was written more than a year before his resignation. In it, Moore explained his troubles with SBC's leadership in bitterly frank terms, focusing especially on resistance that he'd met around issues uh, related to racial justice and the sexual abuse cases that we've already talked about. Now, a week after the first letter was leaked, a letter by 
memoir that was sent to SBC President J.D. Greer was published on the site The Baptist Blogger. In that letter, which was dated May 31st, Moore said that leaders had sought to exonerate churches with credible allegations of negligence and mistreatment of sexual abuse survivors. Moore said that members of the executive committee then became enraged when he invited Rachel Den Hollander to speak at a conference that they held in 2019 on sexual abuse in the SBC. Uh, by the way, some of our listeners may know that Rachel Den Hollander is a lawyer and a former gymnast who was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nasser, the former Michigan State University and USA gymnastics doctor, of multiple counts of sexual assault. So, why would that upset them? Well, it's a good question because Rachel Den Hollander, to a lot of people's thinking, is kind of a hero and would be a very appropriate person to speak at that conference. Uh, but uh, Rachel Den Hollander, who is also a Southern Baptist, detailed the mistreatment of a fellow sexual abuse survivor at the hands of the executive committee. That survivor's name was not mentioned in the letter, but it is believed to be Jennifer Lyle, who was a former uh, employee of the Christian publishing arm of the SBC called Lifeway. Um, She went public several months ago with allegations of sexual abuse against a prominent SBC leader. Uh, Now, Natasha, if I might have a little personal sidebar here, I was actually at that conference in Fort Worth almost two years ago now, and the atmosphere was pretty electric at the time. Uh, I interviewed Rachel Den Hollander immediately after she spoke that day in front of about 2,000 people uh, detailing these allegations against SBC's leadership. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. Um, I interviewed her immediately after that, as I said, and you can find our interview on the Ministry Watch website. What uh, Rachel Den Hollander has done to expose sexual abuse, sometimes at great personal cost, has been, and I used that word before, heroic in my opinion, but for her to speak out against Southern Baptists at their own event did not sit well with a lot of folks that she was criticizing, Um, though I should say that from the 2,000 Southern Baptists who were actually there, she got a standing ovation. So all of this is just to say that these are just a few of the very contentious issues that Southern Baptists are going to have to work their way through in the week ahead. Well, while we're on the subject of Southern Baptists, let's cover a story of a name change by a Southern Baptist organization in Oklahoma. Are Southern Baptists trying to distance themselves from the name Southern Baptist? Well, it's a good question, uh, but before I get to that, let me just recount some of the facts here. Uh, The Baptist Foundation of Oklahoma has rebranded itself as Water's Edge. The name uh, change came at the end of a process that uh, leaders there say began three years ago and was made official in November of 2020, though they're just now making the announcement public. The foundation was founded in 1946, and it manages more than a half a billion dollars in assets. Mike Schuler is a vice president of marketing and communication, said that there is nothing Nothing negative about the Baptist brand that caused them to change its name. He said the group's website and promotional materials still make it clear that Water's Edge is, in fact, a Southern Baptist ministry. Then why the change? 
Well, Schuler said it was to make it easier for non-Baptist groups to take advantage of their services. Uh, the name change, they said, happened for three primary reasons. Uh, first, Water's Edge is no longer a foundation. So having the word foundation in the title doesn't make sense anymore, but they also offer all kinds of other financial services. Secondly, they wanted to take Oklahoma out of the name because they were starting to serve organizations from beyond the state. And thirdly, Water's Edge is dividing into two branches, Water's Edge Advisors to provide financial planning services to individuals and families, and Water's Edge Ministry Services, which uh, really works directly with churches and Christian ministries. While we're talking about financial services, there was a story on the website this week about the Duke Endowment. What's the significance there? Well, the significance is that the Duke Endowment, which is a Charlotte-based private foundation, uh, is very large. It has $4 billion in assets, and it gives millions of dollars to United Methodist churches every year through its Rural Church Grant Program. But there's a big change coming to the United Methodists. There's an anticipated split between conservatives and progressives within that denomination, and that could put the fund for rural churches in a tough spot. The endowment operates according to guidelines that were set out almost 100 years ago by James Buchanan Duke, who set up the trust just before he died in 1925. Duke had been raised in a Methodist family, and he made funding rural Methodist churches a core part of the endowment's mission. But the Duke Endowment says that uh, it only makes rural church grants to United Methodist churches, not to other denominations, such as, for example, the Evangelical Methodist Church or the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, Duke's uh, indenture of trust document specifies that the funding should go directly towards churches associated with the Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which, when it reorganized a number of years ago, became the modern-day United Methodist Church. So how much money are we talking about? Well, a lot. In 2019, uh, which is the last year we have data for, uh, they gave away more than $35 million. In fact, there are some rural Methodist churches that simply won't survive without these funds. And it'll be interesting to see what the Duke Endowment does after the split. And it'll also be interesting to see what the individual churches do, whether they'll be motivated to follow the money rather than follow their consciences. Uh, answering that question is precisely why we wanted to cover the story, and we'll keep an eye on it uh, as both the United Methodists and the Duke Endowment get their respective acts together on these questions. Warren, we're going to take another quick break here, but when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. 
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, I'm guessing that a lot of evangelicals have had this experience. You're visiting a friend's home, and you see a photo of a sponsored child on the refrigerator alongside other family photos, perhaps. Or maybe you sponsor a child yourself through Compassion or World Vision, and you have a photo on your own refrigerator. Well, the Guardian newspaper has published a story saying that child sponsorship programs are a scam and that children who are sponsored are actually being exploited. Wow, that doesn't sound good at all. Yeah, the only problem is it's just not true. Uh, Child sponsorships are an easy way to raise money. Uh, There's nothing that will separate a rich white evangelical from his or her money faster uh, than a child who looks sad in some developing country. Uh, Because of that, some organizations have behaved unscrupulously using kids to raise money. In fact, some experts call this practice and the use of such photos poverty porn. Uh, But we unleashed our reporter, Steve Raby, on some of the best-known child sponsorship programs, the programs at Compassion International World Vision, and they had great answers to tough questions. So the bottom line here is, can child sponsorship programs be abused? Well, of course, absolutely they can be. But are they uh, bad in and of themselves, and in the largest organizations, are they being misused? Uh, We don't think so. Uh, We looked at them pretty closely, and I really recommend Steve Raby's article to you if you want to dig into this issue more deeply. That sounds like a really helpful article. Now, let's stick to the subject of philanthropy. What's next? Well, it looks like donors are ready to get back to -to face-to-face fundraising events. Nearly six out of 10 charitable donors said that they will be ready to participate in in in-person fundraising events starting this summer, provided certain conditions are met. Now, the survey was done uh, by a software company, a fundraising software company called One Cause. They call it their giving experience study. And they say that being vaccinated is the main requirement that donors have before they're willing to attend a gala or other in-person fundraising event. Older donors want additional safety precautions in place as well, such as, for example, the event being held outside or with a limited capacity. And who do you have in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, we have in the spotlight Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF. Uh, They've been around since 1945, and the organization really does have a storied history of service all around the world. However, we also need to report that in recent years, the financial management of MAF hasn't been up to the level of its peers in the missions world. And in fact, it gets Ministry Watch's lowest possible financial efficiency rating, a one-star out of five star rating. And to make matters worse, from our point of view at least, it claims to be a church and doesn't even release its Form 990s to the public. We consider that to be a pretty serious problem. Uh, We've not yet issued a donor alert regarding Mission Aviation Fellowship. A donor alert is our way of saying that you should not donate money to a ministry until they clean up their act. But we are currently putting MAF under review for consideration of a donor alert. And finally, Warren, what ministries are we featuring in the Ministries Making a Difference column this week? 
Well, first is for Haiti with Love. They launched a program to provide tiny homes for single moms in Haiti. Starter Homes was designed as a spinoff of the larger Pilgrim Houses program that built larger houses for homeless families. It's a pretty cool program, and we've actually got a picture of one of those tiny homes uh, on our website. This past weekend, Mercy Chef celebrated 15 years of serving hot chef-prepared meals from their mobile kitchens to victims of natural disasters. Um, In the past 15 years, uh, Mercy Chef's founder, Gary LeBlanc, says that his teams have served 15 million meals. That's a lot of meals over a relatively short period of time. And finally, uh, hymn writing duo Keith and Kristen Getty are announcing their annual Sing Global 2021 conference that will take place in Nashville in September. This may be the largest live event that I've heard about happening post-pandemic. They are expecting as many as 15,000 people there. Guest speakers will include John Piper and David Platt and one of my favorites, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's, by the way, got a great voice herself and usually leads the crowd in a couple of hymns. Uh, The Gettys describe the conference as an opportunity to reset congregational singing, restore hope, and reunite the church in Christ-centered worship. And before we go, do you have any quick notes? Well, just that I want to thank everyone for making the relaunch of my book, Faith-Based Fraud a Success. Sales have been strong. And by the way, all the proceeds go to Ministry Watch and not to me personally. I just want to make that clear. And we now have an audio book available at audible.com. Check out my daily emails for a link to the Audible uh, edition of this book. I also want to thank all of you who've made a financial contribution to Ministry Watch recently. Our fiscal year ends June 30th, and while it's been a really good year for us, I also want you to know that we have big plans for the year ahead, so we could really use your support to help us finish this year strong. To give online, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pitzer, Steve Raby, Yonat Shimron, Shannon Cuthrill, Kim Roberts, Ann Stike, Alejandra Molina, and Claudia Lauer. And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.